Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here is your 30-second summary. She's giving and she's gracious. She's smart and quite courageous. Creative and audacious. Jane Addams Double D. Her house is a museum where people come to see them. She's always glad to greet them. Jane Addams Double D. The end. Let's talk about Jane Addams. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1860, Bertie, the future King Edward VII, made it the very first visit of any British royal to the United States. 11-year-old Grace Bedell wrote to candidate Abraham Lincoln and told him he should grow a beard. The next month, he was elected the 16th president of the United States. The covered gimlet screw with a T-handle, what we know as a corkscrew, was patented. The Pony Express made its first mail delivery from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California, 18 months later, the last letters were delivered. South Carolina seceded from the Union, and Harriet Tubman ran her last mission freeing slaves. Lizzie Borden, Annie Oakley, Grandma Moses, and Juliet Gordon Lowe were born. And on September 6, 1860, Jane Addams, the future pioneer in social reform, entered this world. Laura Jane Adams was born on September 6, 1860, the eighth child of the nine children of John Wee Adams and Sarah Weber Adams, though three of those children died of cholera or etc. before she was born and one died at birth, as we shall see. So functionally, Jenny, as everyone called Laura Jane, was raised as the youngest of five children. Jenny, after Jenny Lind, famous singer and recent homage, um, give E in the greatest showman if you've seen it <laughs> ah nice the nickname jenny at this time was most often used for the names johanna joanna and jane then jennifer jennifer relative of guinevere didn't become a popular name in this country until our jenny was in her 30s or when i was in my zeros seems like i had upwards of five jennies jennifers or jens in every single class i was ever in my entire life <laughs> Okay, well, Papa's family had been in America since before the Revolutionary War. The extra D in their last name, A-D-D-A-M-S, came from a desire to differentiate between two cousins with the same name around the time of that war. So it was the Jennifer R. and Jennifer B. of the 1770s. <laughs> he worked as a teacher and met Mama when he worked for her brother-in-law as a miller's apprentice. Now you think, oh, that's kind of lowly. Oh, no. He had a bankroll. He had a big fat wallet of cash to buy his own mills and had wisely chosen to learn in a mill before he bought one. So this is not your minimum wage worker of the time. This was a moneyed man who was on his way up. And you know what? It also shows that he wasn't going to be one of those gentlemen business owners that he really wanted to get involved in his business and know how it worked rather than just owning it. Yes. So he is billed as, you know, in her biography and other books as a self-made man. And I'm like, mm, I don't know that a lot of self-made men started out with $120,000. No. But that's okay. He did parlay <laughs> that initial investment into quite a fortune. He became Cedarville's first citizen, really, the most important man in town by the time of Jenny's birth. In fact, he was an Illinois state senator and a supporter of this lawyer named Abraham Lincoln, who was just about to be elected president. In fact, Abraham Lincoln called him my dear Double D Adams. 
I love that. That's so sweet. <laughs> well, and I didn't find out too much about Mama's background. It seems like she came from some money, but mm-hmm. ladies of her era were expected to be able to turn their hands to practical matters too. So she, uh, you know, since her husband was away a lot, she did become the manager of a large enterprise in his absence and not the mill necessarily, but she did feed all the mill workers three meals a day. And that's 20 people plus her whole family. So imagine making 90 meals a day with (laughs) two hired girls plus managing the whole house. So she couldn't have been that much of a fine lady. She was a very practical lady that could do a lot of things, I think. Definitely one of those roll up her sleeves, just get it done kind of people, which, you know, thrive on the prairie. And she was also billed in all these books as, quote, the angel of the household, the typical ideal Victorian woman, which is kind of easy to do when the person writing the memoir doesn't ever know you. For real? <laughs> yeah. Um, as we shall see. So anyway, she is or is not the ideal Victorian woman. We just really don't know. But she does have a big heart. I mean, that's clearly obvious. And she has a lot of energy and she likes to get things done. Well, when little Jenny was born, she contracted a variety of tuberculosis called pot disease, P-O-T-T, similar to, but not identical to the hunchback of Notre Dame, what he was going through. Um, it lodges in your spine typically and gives you a crooked back and in her case a very fairy-like thinness half of babies born to untreated tuberculosis mothers got some sort of tb Mm -hmm. and i think jenny's had traveled from her mother the bacteria travels from the lungs into the spine i didn't know this was a thing Mm-hmm. No, you could get tuberculosis in your spine. You just think of it as a lung thing. She walked leaning over to the side. She walked pigeon-toed and she was always really self-conscious about it, which is kind of sad for a little girl. So the family doted on her, maybe afraid that she wasn't long for this world, frankly. They had literally just the year before she was born lost one of their children. So this poor little angel by the looks of her, was not going to be around for long. So you know what, you guys, rosy-cheeked children, let her play with that. Be nice nice to Jenny. It's the least you can do, you know, and all that. So she was awful spoiled, I think, as a small child. (laughs) Well, war was in the air. I might uh, refer you to our Mary Todd Lincoln episodes 69 and 70 to get a little more detail on this since Jenny was only seven months old when the South seceded. And so she is not what you'd call a reliable witness. More important from a child's point of view was the fact that her mama was about to have another baby. So exciting. But unlike her previous eight pregnancies, this one seemed to be fraught with complications. She never felt well, never was very energetic. She had never had this happen before. I myself threw up for almost five months, but I only have one child. (laughs) (laughs) I did that with my first, but we have to remember she was 46 at the time. So a pregnancy on a 46-year-old woman is a little rougher. So maybe she was kind of, you know, brushing it off as that. Oh. I had my last kid at 42, and it was rougher than my first one at 30. So I think that's part of it. Well, when Mama was about seven months pregnant, she was called out to help a neighbor have her own baby. But she collapsed on the way and had to be carried home. And Papa had to be sent for. He was with the state senate in Springfield. He was away. There was a great distress in the household. The only strong memory of her mother that Jenny seemed to have later in her life was screaming and beating on the bedroom door and her mother yelling, let Jenny in. She's hardly more than a baby herself and running in to sit by her mother on the bed and cry. That's... That's it. There was a desperate attempt to save Mama by taking the baby early, which failed. And both of them died, the baby and Mama, within days of her collapse. 
Mama was buried with her four babies, and life in the Adams house was never the same again. Jane actually wasn't even allowed to go to the funeral. And the family kind of did what a lot of families at the time did. They just kind of refused to talk through the grief. And that affected her for the rest of her life. Later, as an adult, she said, my protest against the efforts so made to shield children and young people from all that has to do with death and sorrow. Young people themselves often resent. They feel set aside and belittled as if they were denied the common human experiences. That's a very long sentence um, later <laughs> in life to say, I wasn't allowed to grieve as a child. Mama was gone and we just didn't talk about it. I wonder if also that gave her some attachment issues because she never really got close to people in a way that I would consider standard, you know. Um, oh. There was always a bit of a distance, like don't get too close because at any minute people just disappear. Perhaps not even resolved until Mary Smith comes into her life in her 30s, i.e. in part two of this episode. Interesting. I'm no psychologist. <laughs> well, big sister Mary took over the mothering role. Uh, Mary was only 17, so she took a lot of responsibility on. But this was an era where girls routinely got married at 16, so it wasn't even considered strange for a 17-year-old to run the household. An elderly governess with the fabulous name of Polly Beer <laughs> sort of took over, you know, the mechanical parts, bath, dressing, you know, the childcare part. Mm -hmm. And Polly had helped raise Sarah. So I don't know how old she could possibly have been if Sarah was 46 when she died. So I don't know how much Polly could actually you know, really do. Yeah, she was in her upper 60s. Was, yeah. I imagine little Jenny wandering around in this atmosphere of grief. She doesn't understand what's happening, of course, where her mother is. Papa, again, he was a lot of times out of town. So Mary was in charge. Although when he was there, he was kind of an involved parent. You know, he wasn't one of those just go to the office guys. He played with his kids. He talked with his kids. And when he was home, Jenny followed him around to try and get closer to him. Anytime Papa was home, she became his little shadow. And her main goal in life, frankly, seemed to be to make her father proud of her. And there was this idol status she put upon him. She knew that he was a respected citizen in the town. I mean, men bowed to him as they went on, you know, to the point where this makes me feel sad. She would not even walk beside him to church because... She felt unworthy of his gloriousness. You know, like, I can't be seen next to you. It destroys your street cred. <laughs> that is pretty unhealthy. It I is. Although I think Papa kind of knew about that because one day she was walking by his offices and he came out and tipped his hat to her to say hello. That's charming. Yeah, like special. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I do like Papa's, I guess I'll call him Quaker values. Uh, tell the truth. Try not to arouse envy in others. And, you know, just in general, don't be a dirtbag. Just <laughs> when there's a choice, choose to be good. He didn't even lock the front door because that implied you didn't trust your neighbors. I don't know. Quakers probably lock their doors now. But right. you, in that viewpoint, were supposed to ultimately decide that people were going to be good, which I think actually did percolate into Jane's mind. Because if you think about her later work, we'll revisit that maybe a little later, but her initial impulse upon meeting people is that they had it in them, whatever it was. She had faith that they would, you know, handle it if they were just given a little bit of help. So mm -hmm. I think Papa really had a great influence on her mind as well as her little spirit by bowing. 
I do. I know. And on her ability to juggle several tasks and just keeps opening new ones, you know, just keeps starting new projects. He himself, he was the wealthiest man in town. He owned a lot of the real estate. He owned the bank. He owned a wool factory, an insurance company. He owned the sawmill. He owned the flour <laughs> mill. He was instrumental in getting the trains to come to Cedarville, which of course is just good business if you're producing something to get it back out. But um, he was active and he was always taking on new projects. So I think that kind of filtered down to her too. Jenny went to the local school, in fact, that her own father had been instrumental in setting up about 10 years before she was born. So he even had his finger in the educational system. Yeah, he was big on education. And at one point, the town library was their house. He had all the books out for anyone to borrow in town. Right there, in their house. Ooh, now that, okay, put a pen in that for an echo, too. Mm -hmm. Note to self. Other people came into their house and borrowed educational materials. I would, I'm just so intrigued by that. <laughs> you just don't realize until you like analyze it, how things that happen to someone when they're a little kid must get in somehow. Man, uh-huh. what yeah. am I doing to my child? <laughs> uh, well, Jenny was often quite ill during her elementary school years, but only at night, curiously. Stomach aches, headaches, my back hurts, etc. She never missed school for it. And Did you read that people thought it was psychosomatic? Yes, throughout the early part of her life. Well, her sister Alice later said at this point, she was kind of a monster, <laughs> that... Um, That could be just older sister stuff. But it was clear that she was the boss of the domestic side of the house. If Jenny cried, everything had to stop and we all had to get up out of our beds and deal with the situation. (laughs) When Jenny was six, a couple of things happened that changed the course of her life. First, the second sister in line, Martha, died of typhoid fever while she was away at school. That is child number five that Papa has lost. Incidentally, Jenny was not allowed to go to this funeral either. About a year and a half or so later, Papa remarried to a widow from town named Anne Hostetter Haldeman, who was once Martha's piano teacher. Her late husband had, in fact, been the town's other Miller, the competition. (laughs) Um, The not as successful competition, I have to add. Although Anne saw herself as this lady of refinement, very interested in the arts and of quality items around her, and her husband didn't. Uh, make enough to provide that for her. And when he died, Anne and her children had virtually nothing. So she has this image of herself as being this woman of refinement, but she has a bank account that says, holy crap, I'm a pauper. Well, she did have definite views about heirs and graces. She held herself to a higher standard of culture than her pioneer neighbor. She reminds me a lot of if you watched the 1970s series, Little House on the Prairie, um, she's Mrs. Olson mm-hmm. <laughs> to me. Oh, yeah. The house was remodeled. We add bathrooms. We put velvet curtains up. The kids were remodeled. Everyone dressed more nicely and had nicer table manners. Society was important. So invitations went out. They had um, evenings, you know, dinner parties, etc. Education was vital to her as well as her husband. So that is a point upon which they met. But I will tell you, in contrast to wife number one, the angel of the house who loved everyone and kept everyone sane, although there was a time that the kids were playing by the river and she had told them not to and she pushed the son in the river (laughs) to teach him a lesson. So how genteel and gentle was Sarah exactly? (laughs) We have little hints that she may not have been, you know, gliding along on wheels all the time. (laughs) No, she's very, very human. And also Sarah cooked. 
I want to throw that in there. Sarah cooked and did not. How do you get to be this age raising a family and not cook? Um, hello, you have servants for that. Anyway, I am hereby not assigning virtue to the ability to cook. My husband is a chef, and that's not what makes him a good guy. I push three o o enter, and I'm medium okay most of the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. That one just jumped out at me. I think we might have had a different impression of Anne, which is fascinating to me. I didn't care for her very much. Well, I didn't necessarily care for her. Her temper was very violent. It was explosive in a way that Sarah's had never been. It brought a lot of energy in the house, and I honestly think her husband was a little afraid of making her mad. That's kind of healthy, actually. Um, But... (laughs) I kind of point to Jane's later calm demeanor, the fact that all hell could be breaking loose around her and it doesn't flap her to this period of her life. When someone in the house has a temper like this, it does at this point seem quick to rise and quick to dissipate. She was frustrated by society's pressure on her. She always wanted to be an artist, but instead what happened? She got married at 16 the first time and then married the second time, not for love, just to give her children a father and hope for a future. And I'd be a little grumpy too. And there's nothing, society thought that was just fine. Mm -hmm. You know, so we don't know too much about Anne's desires, but she did say that if, you know, if she could just have pleased herself, she would have been an artist. And there was nothing in her life that allowed that to happen. No, that's true. And she did do good things for the family. I mean, she was a big reader. So she shared that with Jenny and she liked the family to do things together and to go on vacations. They had never done that before. So they went on vacations together as a family. Now, I don't want you to think that she was a wicked stepmother at all. Far from it. She, in fact, said the following, and I quote her, It's quite an honor to be loved by such a family of children as this, who, if you think about it, were mostly her companions a lot of the time. Papa was often out of town at the Capitol. I I think that she was a nice person who just was in a bad circumstance. Mm -hmm. Okay. She does rub me the wrong way later, but... In this period, I don't think she's bad at all. There's one thing that she was not, not buying, which I love this, was all of this hypochondria of Jane's. She followed a policy of good attention rather than, I'm going to call it romancing the sickness. Okay. You know, like, let me take you horseback riding. Go play with your stepbrother, Georgie. She kept her busy and outside playing instead of brooding. I think that's a good thing. And the thing that she brought to the family that was the greatest was her son, Georgie. (laughs) He was her best friend. (laughs) Although I have to say, the stuff they got up to, I am just like, what the frick? They would go down to the sawmill and ride the log like some kind of horrible James Bond movie, daring themselves to stay on until they almost got their faces cut off by the blade. Okay, you know who else did that? Who? Clara Barton as a child. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of is my grandma's brother sticking her in quicksand to see who's the fastest to get her out. Or <laughs> this is just around the same time period that Elizabeth Cady Stanton's sons shot, somebody shot somebody in the eye with an arrow and somebody else like pushed the baby out on the lake on a raft. <laughs> I'm just like, maybe there is a reason we have nine children because there's a little bit of wastage. Oh my gosh. I am just like, what is happening? Oh my gosh. I love their relationship because they are the same age. I think there was a nine month difference between Jenny and Georgie. So they got along great. They had 
equal temperaments. They worked together terrifically. They got into trouble together terrifically. They would play for hours. They made up little calling cards that said artist on them, and then they'd pretend they were artists. How cute is that? Which probably upset Anne now that I'm saying it out loud. Uh, well, or maybe she liked it. Maybe she's maybe. like, well, there's my heritage coming out and he has a chance to be an artist. Oh, maybe. Well, Papa hadn't exactly been down with too much reading of fiction. And that is a very Victorian conceit that novels are not so good for the brain because they're made up and they're, you know, not real. But Anne came in with a new attitude about story time. Notably, Anne bought Jenny a copy of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. That's episode 104 of the History Chicks, with which Jenny became obsessed. Now, based on what you know already about Jenny, would you agree that she's a Joe? Uh, yes, I would. I would. And she read and reread Little Women over and over again. And I think the uh, atmosphere of service within the March household kind of filtered down to her, too. So th- that's a terrific thing that happened because she read fiction. <laughs> there's, there's a not good thing. Those of you who read Little Men, remember Little Men is my favorite of all the Little Women books. Jenny and Georgie got all inspired by Little Men to burn up some of their toys in sacrifice to the naughty kitty mouse, just like Daisy and Demi. So and cute. I, I am wondering if little kids all over the country are like taking their favorite lead soldiers and paper dolls down to the river to burn them up. Life imitating art. I love it. As long as nothing else burns down, I don't have a problem with it. They were so good. for. They're like these buddies. They had adjoining rooms. They shared pets. They went to school together. I love that each of them had each other during this period of their lives. Well, Jenny learned the ladylike arts and graces, of course. Anne was very strict on etiquette. And Papa was insisting that his daughters be given the education of his youth, too, and required all of his daughters to bake him a perfect loaf of bread on their 12th birthday. Now, he's a miller, so that actually makes a little sense. Like, welcome to the the family. This is your bat mitzvah or whatever, your bread mitzvah. (laughs) I literally just, that came out of my head. I hope that's not offensive. Speaking of Louisa May Alcott, a prominent scene in Louisa May Alcott's Eight Cousins. Also, the first loaf of bread that the child bakes, she becomes a woman and a member of society. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it was a very popular thing in literature. Well, I will tell you, the first one didn't rise. And as a watcher of the Great British Baking Show, I'm so sorry about that. That sucks. They had just watched um, uh, Bread Week from the last season when I was reading about that. I was like, oh, look at that. Well, the second one was too holy, mm-hmm. whatever that means. And the third one was just right. But she basically spent her entire 12th birthday trying to get this knocked out. <laughs> so sad. It's probably a good thing that he didn't require it of his wife. <laughs> as like a test. <laughs> she would not have passed that test. No. So back to Jenny. She liked to read, of course, and reluctantly rode that horse and went to piano lessons. But mostly... What Jenny loved to do more than anything else was to study science with her stepbrother, Georgie. The older kids had all gone to marriage or careers. And when these two were the only two still at home, it was, you know, bottles and beetles. And you like these threes, botany. Alliterations, yes. But man, did they study science and chemistry all day, every day. It was considered a gentleman's pastime. Both of her stepbrothers went off to become doctors. And Jenny thought, well, uh, perhaps that's what I'm going to do too. Women had been able to become doctors for almost 30 years in America. It attracted 
the smartest ladies, really. And one book I read said it also attracted the lowest echelon of men. It was considered the lowest profession for a man to be respectable. And that is an interesting dichotomy. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. But I think it's interesting that women were allowed to be doctors at this period in time. Because we don't really think about that. You know, we, we always joke about the medicine of this era, but I always imagine a man administering it, not a woman. Well, and I guess I was a little surprised that there had been a 30-year history. So she's not even remotely a pioneer in wanting to become a doctor. That was a that was a path one could take at mm -hmm. this time. At 17, when she'd graduated from the red brick schoolhouse down the road, she really, really pushed to go to Smith College in Massachusetts. On the DL, there was a medical college that trained women nearby for afterward. Shh, because Papa was not down with this. But Papa said no. Smith's too far. Massachusetts, no. You can go to Rockford Female Seminary like all your sisters did. It's, it's close. It's good enough. Mm -hmm. And it was a big disappointment. Yeah, because another thing that she was thinking was she wanted a degree. And at the time, not all women's colleges, when you completed the coursework, you got a certificate, not a Bachelor of Arts or of Science. You got a certificate. And she really wanted that degree, which is something that Smith offered. She wanted it so badly that she went to Northampton, Mass., and took the entrance exam to get in and passed it. But dad said no. She had to go to the UCCA, which would be the university closest to the Cedarville area. Oh, sad. <laughs> well, she did agree to go to Rockford, even though it was stuck in the past and not that academic of a place for a person who wanted to push herself. Plenty of women's colleges existed with hardcore curriculums. Vassar. Wellesley had literally just opened the year before, but instead, ugh. You know, she hoped she'd be able to change Papa's mind later anyway. So this mm. is that year. Okay, I'll go through a year. Let's why make waves? That's fine. So Rockford it is, I guess. And with this little bump in the road, let's take a little break. We'll be back with Jane, the college years. Jane is packing her trunks for her safety school. Surely it's going to be okay. The mission of Rockford Female Seminary at the time was to, quote, teach young women to elevate, purify, and adorn the home, and to give oneself fully for the good of others. Sounds like an academic wonderland. Their other goal was to produce Christian mothers and missionaries for the evangelization of the world. Jane was not a religious person herself. She was constantly seen as a little challenge because it was known she wasn't baptized. How do you know that? Um, it's in your record. Is it really? Yeah, when you're baptized, you have a church record. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It says you're a member of that church and whether you were baptized or not. And no, I know. So but like, is that in your college application? To Rockford Women's Seminary? I'm going to go with yes. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, she didn't necessarily mind being a challenge because she's like, I'm a rock. Please continue to beat your waves against me. I don't care. 
like, so whatever. So it didn't bother her at all. Um, so that's good. Everyone likes a little challenge. And if you're determined to learn something, though, you will. And she was. She took on extra classes, set herself more lessons than were assigned, read, read, read. Like me, she'd have a few books on the go at once. You know, one open in every room. It's <laughs> Isn't it weird that Joe March and Hermione don't know each other? Because they're hanging out of my head. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I have a problem <laughs> with... Um, That's funny. I'm imagining this uh, little party between you and Hermione and Joe <laughs> sitting at the bar. Yeah, not talking to each other because <laughs> we're all reading a book. <laughs> These are my best friends. We get each other. <laughs> Well, she was obsessed, like Louisa May Alcott, with the works of Emerson. And here is a small world situation. During one of Bronson Alcott, remember that's Louisa May Alcott's father, uh, one of his speaking tours, he gave a lecture on transcendentalism at Jane's College. And she lined up for front row seats. And she won the right to clean the mud off the great man's boots, which would be an Instagram post today, you know. <laughs> She considered that the greatest honor. Yeah, well, it kind of was. Hashtag hero. Hashtag wish you were me. <laughs> well, she wrote and later was editor of the school's literary magazine. And I do think it's curious that one of the pieces she wrote was about, quote, beggars. It was very disdainful. The premise of this article was that a man must give full equivalent for everything he receives in life, which was a little harsh considering her future calling and life, upper classes at the time thought that the poor people were poor because they were bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's a product of her environment, that's for sure. I will say in her defense, when she took over this literary magazine, it had kind of a religious theme and she kind of switched it around to address issues that applied to the students. She learns, you know, just like all of us, if you won't go back in any of our past, you're going to find something that we said that was stupid. <laughs> You know. Yeah, I guess so. And well, let's just say that concept of hers did evolve, you know, mm -hmm. more on that later, I guess. That's um, that's the bulk of our episode today. So um, <laughs> in some of her essays also, she talked about the changing role of women. And I quote, why should not a woman of strong ruling mind be our president when a needy time comes in place of a man of weak sense and administrative ability? Mm -hmm. So I, I hereby let that settle. I think... <laughs> I think college women, this vanguard of the first, 0.24% of their age, two in every thousand even attended college at all, mm -hmm. and many, 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 many dropped out from overwork or to get married. They had a hard road to hoe. What was the role of an educated woman in society? Nobody knows. Nobody. Teacher? Missionary? Doctor? That's all you can do professionally. Did men want educated wives? Did educated women want to be wives? <laughs> I don't know. Were they trying to be men? Everyone was concernicus. What happens to the feminine side when the ladies enter the men's sphere? Is anyone going to cook? <laughs> I mean, she was the only woman in a co-ed debating contest, and you'd have thought the earth had stopped spinning. <laughs> yeah, she was on debate team. Does that, does that surprise anybody? <laughs> But I will say it wasn't all nose to the grindstone. I love the description that I read of Jane and her friends making illicit midnight feast in her room. She would lock the door and they'd have popcorn and nuts and make sure that the light, you know, no light escaped. And it was not allowed. They would also have these really deep intellectual discussions. And during one of these discussions, they realized that um, there was a school of thought out there that real intellectual thought 
could be had if one ingests opium. So guess what they did? They were found lying fully dressed on the floor. Yeah, it didn't really work out too well for them. Mm -hmm. Other things on the menu included oysters, fried eggs that they made in buttered paper boxes. And I thought, what the heck? Okay, I looked that up. That's still a thing. It's called en papillote. Really? I hope also they had a big glass of water because everything is so salty. Or maybe beer. We know the water at Rockford Seminary is not good because her sister Martha died of typhoid that she picked up from drinking water from a well that was not situated far enough away from the lavatory situation. Let's just put it that way. So perhaps water is not the best choice. Yeah, I hope they're drinking beer. <laughs> no kidding. We keep covering these ladies like Georgia O'Keefe. That are more like cats. Like, the more people like them, the more distance they want. She, at the time of her college experience, called getting close to someone, quote, descending into friendship. She also, I do believe, has no recorded suitors of any kind. One book I read tried to scrape together a romance out of scraps, really, but there we are. I think we probably read the same book. It actually had two uh, male suitors because men were brought into the campus, you know, for mixers and picnics and, you know, general frivolity, which was highly chaperoned. But there was two suitors apparently in this mix. Or not. That's the thing. I'm kind of not buying either one of these things. They're one even supposedly rose to the level of a proposal. Maybe it was a proposal. It seemed similar to the Jane Austen proposal. Like, did it happen? Did it last more than a night? I mean, like, it didn't seem like a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you said, um, you know, she pushed people away, which, you know, she was an independent thinker. I can see that. But she was also quoted as saying, I am a great admirer of platonic love or rather pure sacred friendship. I think there is so much higher than what is generally implied in the word love. But that was later. Oh, okay. I'll... That was that was post okay. Mary, am I right? Maybe. I you know what I didn't write down the time. Okay. So it, <laughs> she's changing again. Excellent. Excellent. I love it. <laughs> I do love uh she was kind of bold and outspoken. One time she corrected the pronunciation of Don Quixote to the teacher who actually was also the woman who was running the school. And she was suspended for two days for being impolite. <laughs> so she raced off and she, you know, did what a lot of angsty teens do. And she wrote a poem. Here it is. Life's a burden. Bear it. Life's a duty. Dare it. Life's a thorn crown. Wear it and spurn to be a coward. Oh, my gosh. If only she had had some cure or the Smiths to listen to. <laughs> yeah. She had another weird, weird hobby at school, taxidermy. Mm, it seems really brutal to me <laughs> to have all these little ladies like, and her dad was all on board with it. He sent her a hawk once, just a hawk. And she just like ripped its guts out and stuffed it and mounted it on her wall as if it was make no never mind. <laughs> <laughs> this right. just kills me. That also <laughs> reminds me of Beatrix Potter. I'm like, that's kind of a cold go hobby. <laughs> I think it's kind of cool. I mean, she's quite an individual. I love it. She was the valedictorian of her class, ultimately, and much was made of her, quote, exhaustion and nervousness after graduation. But I want you to imagine this. You've spent four years being celebrated by your peers for your intellectual achievements. And now society expects you to stop all that and get married, rent a house, and join, quote, the real 
world. We talked about how stressful that could be during the 1950s Housewives episode. There's just not that much support for women to keep alive their intellectual curiosity in either time period as adults, which led in the 1950s to a Valium addiction epidemic and in Jane's 1870s to diagnoses of, quote, hysteria. As a result, the graduate, and I quote, this is from Jane, the graduate either hides her hurt and splendid reserves of enthusiasm and capacity go to waste, or her zeal and emotions are just turned inward, and the result is an unhappy woman whose vitality is consumed by vain regrets and vain desires. What do the graduates have to look forward to? And she didn't get the degree. Not then. A year later, she, the school turned to Rockford College and they gave degrees. Her class got them. They were the first class to get a degree, even though they were already gone. So that's good. So she got her degree from Rockford eventually. Well, she still had hopes of Smith. She ended up at odds with her father over her further education. So she didn't know that the degree program was going to... Um, come into place right. at her current college. So she thought, and Smith agreed, that you could go there, go a year, and get a degree from Smith because you had a lot of previous work that would transfer, you know. Or what about University of Edinburgh Medical School in Scotland? No, yeah. no, 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 no. He wanted her to be the daughter at home, a companion, a credit to his investment among his friends. And she couldn't manage to wear him down about this. And she was so frustrated. She was 21 years of age and had no more autonomy over her life than a child of seven, which is the classic position of grown-up lady persons throughout history. As a fun cue, on a family vacation, Papa died suddenly of a burst appendix. He left her the equivalent of $1.2 million in today's money. I do want to point out, though, he died without a will, which sounds really bad. But the reason he did is that he trusted in the inheritance laws that he had helped pass in the Illinois legislature, (laughs) that they would take care of the family properly. He just trusted it. He's like, I don't need a will. The widow of the deceased receives two thirds of his fortune and any children receive a portion of the remaining third. And that's just how it went. So he left her very well off monetarily and also with an amazing amount of guilt and uncertainty. I was thinking coldly, maybe. Uh (laughs) Well, now you can do whatever you want. You know, go to Scotland, Bonnie Lassie in medical school or whatever. But I am not recalling the fact that this man was her hero. What he thought was very important to her, his life of service had been the ideal she'd been striving for. And, you know, he died right in the middle of her inability to persuade him to see her point of view. So as far as she knew, if she went to medical school, she was just... Betraying his trust and destroying his memory. Jane decided to go ahead and enroll in the Women's Medical College of Philadelphia. Mostly that choice was created because stepbrother Harry. Oh, wait, I didn't tell you. (laughs) Jane's sister had married their oldest stepbrother. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And you know what? Is that even legal now? I wondered. Step siblings marrying? Yes. Even now, in every state except Virginia, you can marry your stepbrother if you want to. But in Virginia alone, no matter how long the parents were married or not married, even if the stepsisters and brothers ever lived together. No, not possible in Virginia. Oh, I I wonder why Virginia of all places. Isn't that funny? But anyway, it was perfectly legal. So that stepbrother and her sister and stepmama all wanted to live in Philadelphia. So kind of as an unmarried woman, she was expected to stay with her chaperone and Anne wanted to live with her son. So it works out. And it was also an arrangement that Anne wanted for Jane and Georgie. 
Georgie was in school in Baltimore, which is very close to Philadelphia. So maybe they could get together. There's a lot of scheming during this point, I think, to get these two married. Well, Jane went to work instead. Um, (laughs) At her medical school, there was an emphasis on female anatomy because who, after all, were going to be their patients, not men. Medical schools for women were founded on the principle that women, out of delicacy, their upbringing, kept their concerns away from their male doctors until things had progressed to a point of no return. Having women doctors would save women's lives, frankly. And parts of it really appealed to her, I think, the book learning parts. Practically speaking, though, she hated dissection of bodies, even after all that taxidermy. (laughs) But more than that, more than that, what she hated about medical school was this weird dead end that she seemed to be headed for. Even if she was a fully qualified doctor, male doctors would give her no respect. In fact, often female medical students were jeered at and spat at in the street. It's, I don't even know. Conservative men would regard her as sort of a monster for operating outside of her sphere. Her own instructors, in fact, were firmly steering their female medical students into missionary work, where I have to tell you, it was sure they'd be poorly paid and awfully lonely. And here Jane was thinking this was where she could put all of her energy, all of her brain power. And it turned out it was just another stupid bucket with a lid on it for the world to put her in. It didn't help, I don't think, that her stepmother was at her every day. She stopped that reading and pay calls with me. Greet her guests like a real lady. Go out with Georgie, etc. She's just like not letting her study, not letting her focus, saying it was ridiculous. I mean, really not being supportive at all. And Jane, frankly, had a breakdown. In the spring of her first year of medical school, she dropped out. She had headaches, crying spells, fatigue, body aches. Nowadays, you know, luxury of hindsight or whatever, I would say she'd be diagnosed with depression. Mm -hmm. But then the doctors just nodded gravely and diagnosed these little ladies with neurasthenia, hysteria, that blanket terms for ladies who just can't seem to accept their limited sphere in life. Hmm. She was admitted to a hospital in Philadelphia that was run by a man. Did you ever read the book, uh, The Yellow Wallpaper? Yes. Yes, that's the man that ran the hospital. It was written by one of his former patients, and it's based on her experience. This guy's theory was take these women and cut them off from everything, have no stimulation at all, no reading, no writing, no visitors, just solitary confinement that will correct them. Because he believed neurasthenia was caused by overexertion of the brain. Why were so many of my patients educated young women? Aha. Obviously, they need to rest their brain. So um, yeah, no going outside, no human interaction, no talking, no reading, nothing. There's nothing to do. You try that for a day. I mean, I know we're a little spoiled now because we get mad when a page on the internet takes seven seconds to load. We're like, forget this. I'm turn it off. <laughs> so maybe we are not good examples. So try it maybe for 15 minutes even and not fall asleep. Just try it, you know, look around. There's nothing. There's nothing to do, nothing to think of. It's so frustrating. Frustrating. See if you don't go crazy. Part of it was okay. Yep. She had a high dairy diet. She had massages. Nice. But she also had electroshock therapy a lot. I think while getting massages, because I do believe he had those electrodes on his hands. And also to have a male person massaging you seems weird. And that is where I am not going to go any further with the part of the therapy that I don't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to leave that for your own personal rabbit hole. I think there was some genuine abuse happening between doctors and their female patients at this time. And I think it really emphasized the need that women had for women doctors, if only to prevent what is currently happening. 
So needless to say, Jane came out worse than she went in. Also, her stepmother was pressuring her so hard to marry her stepbrother, George. Also, also, her brother Weber had to be committed to a mental institution because there was too much societal pressure on him as the only son of his father. Seems to be the consensus. There's just so much untreated depression and no one in Victorian times talking about their feelings. Mm -hmm. I don't see how it could ever, I mean, get any better. And there's about eight more years of this simmering under the surface. Her brother, he went, but he was hearing voices, which isn't a symptom of depression. But Georgie was suffering from depression and not just because Jane wasn't going to marry him. Well, there seems to be some kind of theory that George was a homosexual and his mother was pressuring Jane to marry him to both hide it and to cure him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that wouldn't quite work out now, would it? No, indeed. <laughs> During this time, while everybody was battling mental illness, Jane actually had an out for the chronic pain that she was having in her back. Her brother-in-law, Harry, who was now a doctor, could perform a new surgery on her to straighten the curvature of her back. The theory was create scar tissue alongside the spine to straighten it out, but it required her being in bed for six months. And then after that six months when she could stand, she was put in an extremely restrictive corset made out of steel and whalebone. But it was successful because the pain was gone when she was done with the therapies. A long therapy, (laughs) painful operation, but success. 19th century surgery. I just, that's all I have to say about that. Oh, and to create the scar tissue, they like went in and put like caustic chemicals to create scar (laughs) tissue. Well, there is another remedy for stress management available to the upper-class Victorian woman. Probably two. I forgot laudanum. (laughs) But uh, what I mean is the grand tour that's capitalized. In Jane's case, a two-year vacation in Europe, which where do I sign for that (laughs) rest cure? Um, That's what happens when you have $1.2 million and no official things to do, I suppose. So when they were in London, they made a little field trip to the poor section. Gosh, that was so popular to do. Like gangs of New York. Do you remember that the well-heeled what ladies were goggling at the poor people? Yeah. That's No, that I was- mean, I don't remember from that, but that, that was a thing to do at this time. It's a different existence than we're used to. Let's go look. Like the human zoo or something. Going slumming. That's literally where this yeah. came from. Yeah. Um, and something that stuck with Jane is the fact that people would line up late, late Saturday night to buy the rotting produce left over on the vegetable carts. They were hoping, they were hoping for it. That's the best they could expect. Vendors couldn't sell it on Sunday and it wouldn't last on Monday. So they let it go at a really cheap price and would throw these rotting cabbages at people who were glad to get it. And that was kind of an eye opener to a sheltered woman who had never been anywhere like like this or seen anything like this, urban poverty was not camouflaged by, you know, the smell of hay and the sunlight and trees around the bend. No, it was out in the open for her to see. And it was really shocking. And mm-hmm. it stuck with her mind. She um, felt guilty at her own privilege when she caught sight of society's undercarriage. Like, what is she doing with her life? You know, don't get me wrong. There were glorious, glorious sights. She met amazing people. She signed a guest book right after Susan B. Anthony had and was looking around like, oh, is she still here? You know, (laughs) I mean, there were great experiences. She learned a lot. She was unfulfilled. I know. Play the small violin. Jane's at the opera, you know. (laughs) 
Yeah, right. <laughs> but um, she longed to be useful and to have a purpose. And the things that she had seen were just kind of making her feel like she wasn't doing anything with her life. If she were a man, she had so many choices. Mm-hmm. And as it was, not so much. She was all for taking care of her nieces and nephews and said that one of the greatest duties and pleasures on earth was the care of a child, of a trusting child. That was something that she felt was like one of the highest callings. She had nothing against, you know, people being mothers or the existence of children. Just maybe wasn't for her. Now, you know, you think you're a Joe from Little Women. Jane was definitely a Joe from Little Women. I'm finding myself, in fact, feeling very grateful to Louisa May Alcott that she had written that book to tell Jane she wasn't alone. I'm starting to feel differently about the importance, in fact, of that book because people, for people with no role models, here's Joe doing what she wanted within the framework of a family and her society. And I hadn't really valued how important that was before now. Jane began to feel a pull toward charity work. She was working with a, quote, colored, her words, nursing home and orphanage, which lit a spark burning low of purpose in her life. This may be where she could do some good. But instead of doing some good, she decided to go on the European therapy tour again. This time, she took her friend, Ellen Gates Starr, who she had met her first year of Rockford. Ellen didn't come from as wealthy a family as Jane, and she had to drop out after her first year. But the two became really good friends, and they corresponded more than Jane wrote to her own family. So they'd been close this whole time, even though they didn't live together. And Ellen was a teacher in Chicago. So Jane went to Europe. Ellen met her there. And they decided to tour around, which they did. They went to France, Germany, Rome, Madrid. But when they were in Spain, they went to a bullfight. Now, Ellen and Sarah, the other woman that went, left. It was just too gory for them. But Jane was totally into it and she was cheering. And she had this moment where she realized not only did her life not have any purpose, but she had no empathy. She was not feeling any empathy for these bulls and these horses that were being slaughtered right in front of her. So <laughs> that's kind of a woke moment. <laughs> she had an epiphany during a bullfight. Now, this is hard for me to get my head around this chest-beating Victorian rationale, I guess. So she spent the night in agony about this. I'm a horrible person. I'm numb to real suffering. I'm a monster. You know, where is that Depeche Mode? Where? (laughs) When you need it. And she got an idea for a project to help the poor. So that's the good thing that happened out of this night of sleeplessness and chest-beating. What's good about this was that she was in the company of a supportive friend, more than a friend, maybe. To be honest, Ellen was in love with her. I will say, I don't know that it was reciprocated. It doesn't even matter. Because, you know, if you have a project and you don't get good feedback from just, you know, you throw out the little idea, hey, I'm going to start a history podcast, for example. (laughs) It could just die. So you have to get the right fertilizer at the right time. And they talked and planned and schemed until the idea became a force, a goal. So it was good that Ellen was there and so willing to accept her idea. They took a visit back to London to the famous Toynbee Hall Settlement House, and that changed her life forever. It's time for us to take a little break. We are leaving Ellen and Jane on the cusp of their world-altering field trip. And when we come back, we will see how Toynbee Hall inspired Jane's life's work.
we're back. Charity, as it had been practiced, was sort of lady bountiful. You know what I mean? Like, the lord of the manor might send you a leg of lamb. Emma Woodhouse stops by with bread and a blanket. Or, on a larger scale, parish relief. Or the workhouse. Toynbee Hall was a radical departure from this. For one thing, it was not based on religious principles, but on humanism. That is to say, their philosophy was, all people, regardless of station, have a duty to evolve into their best selves. Like, what even is that? What does that mumbo-jumbo translate to? In the real life, what it means is that people, men, in Twinbee Hall's case, of means, lived and worked among the poor. They dedicated their time to providing service to those who were less well-off, not only feeding their bodies, but feeding their minds. There were classes there. There were social clubs. They would bargain to local officials for better facilities and services from schools to street repair. In short, Toynbee Hall was there to create a sense of community, of everyone in a society pulling their own oar to make the whole boat move. And Jane's heart just soared. She had it. This is her quest, her purpose. She was going home and she was going to recreate this project in America, except for in her settlement house, the providers of services were all going to be women. That is going to be the way that college-educated women would make a difference. So she is going to help out her fellow sistren. Is that the real word? <laughs> I think so. So it just seemed like a win-win situation. Like this is going to be a way to give people like me purpose in our lives. She and Ellen settled on going to Chicago, which was in the throes of what can only be called explosive growth. Not even 20 years before the whole thing burned to the ground, you know, the cow kicked over a bucket and the next day 90,000 people were homeless. Right. The, the great fire had happened and this rebuilding had turned Chicago into this powerhouse of energy, just manufacturing of population. It grew 530. 38% in area within the space of 19 years. 68% of the population were immigrants. 10 more percent were the children of these immigrants. That's 78% of people aren't Native Americans. You know, like uh, half the children, though, born in Chicago died before the age of five. Half of them. It's, it's, yeah. the explosive growth is not good. The same thing kind of happened in London. You know, the, the crest of the Industrial Revolution. Everyone moved into towns. The towns aren't ready for this. Nobody's ever had this kind of density before. The problems of this kind of urban population were just unknown. And Chicago was kind of suffering. At least 80% of the citizens in Chicago lived in just grinding poverty. There were labor riots. There were strikes. Very common, just out of desperation, because on the other side of the spectrum, what do you have? You have Marshall Field. You have the Palmers of the Palmer House. You have the, the Pullman car fortune, the Armor and Swift meatpacking millionaires. It was America's Gilded Age. They even had the first skyscraper. It was the first metal frame skyscraper. It was 10 stories tall. So this is like a cartoon of the Gilded Age right here. This is like, right. I can't believe the rich are so rich and the poor are so poor. It was like the Titanic, you know, people are eating pieces of bread in that stupid third class lounge while other people are eating caviar on the top floor. Well, the wealthier women of Chicago had taken on the cause of ameliorating the sufferings of the poor. They were kind of battling injustice on many fronts, prison reform, um, unwed mothers, schools, orphanages, factory workers' rights, child labor. There was a powerful institution called the Chicago 
women's club with 500 members in it of all strata of society, which I thought was very cool. And it was there that Jane and Ellen began networking for support for their scheme. And I don't think we mentioned this earlier, but Jane is good in a room. She has got some kind of magnetism that people cannot resist. I don't know what it is. Some people have it. Some people don't. But, you know, um, word of mouth support started to go all over the city. And Jane and Ellen's project started to get importantly, social credibility. So that's a currency that you can't really put a finger on. But the fact that it was respectable and it was a project that the the people who could move mountains could get behind, that was very, very important. And that was really mostly Jane, I have to say. I don't think Ellen was that dynamic. No, she wasn't, but she was a lot quieter. But Ellen had lived in Chicago. She was a teacher at a girl's school. So she knew the people, I mean, she might not have known them, you know, hey, how's it going, Ellen? But she knew who they were. Ellen was able to kind of point Jane at the right people. And then Jane did the talking. It was a good partnership. Mm-hmm. Well, to that end of social credibility, Jane at last was baptized. And the biographers seem to think this was a calculated PR move to help enlist support from prominent clergymen. I'm going to just leave that up to everyone and their own conscience. <laughs> as to did she suddenly become religious or was it expedient for her project? I, you know, she even yeah. told Denise later in life that she often had lacked confidence that there was even a God at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't really know. This was didn't seem to be a spiritual quest for her, but a practical one. Also, Ellen was extremely religious. So I think that that had an effect on her. You know, she must have been saying, you need to be baptized so that you can have eternal salvation and just to kind of quiet her down, maybe. You know, it was a good PR move. It covered her bases and it got Ellen happy that she was baptized. It was a win, win, win. Well, I don't know. Jane was very wary of people who wanted to help but insisted in putting religious strings on their money or their time. She Mm -hmm. called it harpooning for souls. And she was specifically not down with that Mm -hmm. technique. Well, prominent church officials came on board. They saw what was happening. How could they not around the city? And they were kind of helpless as to like, I don't know how to help my parishioners. I just don't, I don't understand the dynamics of what is happening in the city. And no one did. Um, so this idea, awesome. You know, let's get behind this. And soon Jane and Ellen were invited really everywhere to speak about their idea. They wanted to have personal and real contact with the poor of Chicago. So Jane knew how to play this game. She would market herself this way. I'm not reinventing the wheel. She'd say this is just an extension of the respectable functions of motherhood. Women are um, meant to provide guidance, education, and love. No big. We're not making waves here. We're just going to do it on a bigger scale. See, you know, girl, you know, don't you? You know how to get, like, you got to get the little knife blade underneath the edge. And right. That's the way that she did it. It was good. Yeah, it was really good. No, she was extremely good at reading people and um, she's really good at getting her way. <laughs> she had many tools in her arsenal for that. The two women first rented rooms at a boarding house and they kind of went out shopping. They were looking for the perfect neighborhood, a neighborhood where they could live among the impoverished and do all their programs that they were just starting to, you know, realize could be a thing. They toured the slums of Chicago. This time, they're not just sightseers on a fun day out, but to see where they'd set up their operation. And one day, they were actually headed somewhere else and traveled down a mostly Italian neighborhood, uh, German, Polish, Russian, Jewish, 
Irish, French. I mean, there's everybody, but all in their little blocks. This neighborhood centered around Halstead Street. There were little wooden houses that really only stayed up because they were leaning up against each other. Two or three families inside. There were dead cart horses left to decay in the streets. Kids played on top of piles of garbage. No toilets, no running water, very little money, and no hope, really. Sounds great. I will tell you, my people were Germans from Chicago, but they had gotten there 50 years before. I had hoped they had graduated out of this part of town, but maybe not. (laughs) I do not know. And what to her wondering eyes should appear in the middle of all of this filth and chaos but a decrepit and giant mansion? What is happening? Well, this thing had been built by a rich speculator before Jane was even born. And the neighborhood had not gentrified like he thought it would. It was a very bad investment. (laughs) As luck would have it, this property, as well as most of the land in the neighborhood, really, had just been inherited by some sort of grandniece of the original builder, Miss Helen Culver, college graduate, real estate mogul and social reformer who was willing to deal. The availability for rent, I should say, not buying, of this property probably was the deciding factor in the choice of this neighborhood on Halsted Street. I would say so. At the time that they found it, the bottom floor was being used as a warehouse and the upper floors could be rented out, although there wasn't really much going on up there. The house was run down, but it was still standing and it was right where they wanted it to be. So for $720 a year, which is modern day 17000 Jane got the second floor and a downstairs reception room. Unfortunately, that Sherwood School Desk Manufacturing Company warehouse was uh, occupying the first floor. You can't have everything. (laughs) But she spent the equivalent of $120,000 on refurbishment of a house that wasn't even hers. That astonishes me. Plenty of her network had pledged donations, but this was really a leap of faith of her own money. It should be noted, with no surprise, that Jane's stepmother, who had inherited the bulk of Papa's fortune, not only refused to give or even lend Jane any money, but also got after her for the fundamental principle of the project. She said the classes are separate for a reason, Jane. Yes, Jane was adamant that people are people. So why should it be? (laughs) You and I should get along so awfully. There's a little Depeche Mode for you. We've been trying to get it in all day. (laughs) No, you've been trying to get it in. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Jane, nice women don't have careers. Also, you ruined my son's life by not marrying him. You broke his brain. Uh. (laughs) And that's why she doesn't live with Anne anymore. Well, how do people succeed against these family feelings? I just don't know. Steel in their spine, I guess, or scar tissue. Yeah. <laughs> well, and moving far away. Oh, well, that helps. So they started advertising their classes in assorted newspapers around town in different languages. The neighborhood was just baffled as to what was happening. There's a palace emerging out of the dung heap, is what one man called it. The locals were in equal measure intrigued and offended. Once Jane and Ellen had moved in, some local ne'er-do-wells, the very first thing that happened was they broke a window with a rock. Not a good sign. <laughs> what neighborhood have we moved into? And a man in the street spat right in Jane's face. Yes. What did they think this was? I am wondering, now that I'm thinking about it, if they thought this was a house of negotiable affection. Oh, perhaps. I mean, it was located between a saloon and a funeral home. Fitting for the neighborhood. Yes, perhaps they did think that. That would not be welcome. 
Or maybe they just also thought the classes should stay separate. Or that maybe this would bring more development and price them out of their neighborhood. Maybe they were worried this was gentrification starting. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, lots of people stop by to call on the ladies, maybe the less violent <laughs> people. <laughs> the way you call on a new neighbor, you know, welcome with your eyes, you know, darting all over behind them to check out their stuff. They wanted to see what was happening here exactly. So the nosy Parkers, the gossips, were the best advertisements possible. And the brave and ambitious began to show up to sign up for the classes, including a kindergarten, which opened the very first day with 75 kids on the wait list. (laughs) You guys. It was taught by one of Chicago's debutantes. Young, educated ladies flocked to work at the Halstead Settlement. At last, an outlet for my talent. Just like Jane thought. Jane always said this project was as much for the givers as for the receivers of assistance. And it took a long time for people to start believing her. There was a sign that was hung over the front door. It says, may you find hope who enter here. And that's not just what you just said. That's not just the people in the neighborhood finding hope, but it's the people that are living there and working there finding hope. They're all walking through the same door. Love it. I do too. And within a few months, the kids of the neighborhood were all about it. There were classes in sewing and art and English and writing. They were segregated by language because they kind of had to be. Everyone, (laughs) at least at first, you had to find a translator. Most of these people didn't speak English. These are mostly first-generation Americans. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that Jane personally gave a little bunch of flowers to each girl to take home each week on the way out. I I mean, it's such an intangible, isn't it? Like, Mm -hmm. here, take a little bit of beauty home as a souvenir. Life does not have to be all dark. Here's a little bunch of marigolds or whatever. I am also laughing when I read that she said, the boys seem to be harder to manage. You think? (laughs) (laughs) You mean those ruffian boys that broke your window when you first got in there? Yeah, probably. probably She's she's also like, they track in so much dirt and they spit tobacco everywhere. (laughs) All these newsies, you know, at seven chewing tobacco. Well, within its first two years, a thousand people a week were coming through, adults as well as children, to attend classes or club meetings or lectures from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. each and every day of the week. Every room had something going on. I only mention this because you and I met in an online mom's group, but there were two mother's groups. <laughs> one for stay-at-home moms held in the afternoon and one for working mothers held in the evening. So even that she got right 100 years before, you know, like where you mm-hmm. have to schedule it when people could come, you know, yeah. amazing. It should be noted that as the settlement expanded, it also would eventually include a baby nursery and a daycare, which was a benefit for working mothers too. So it didn't at the beginning, but as they expanded, that was one of the very first things they added. I mean to tell you, young women got off their factory shifts and came in to argue about poetry with <laughs> other. There were sports teams and debating clubs for the boot blacks and the meatpacking laborers. Driven young people could take authorized college extension courses in history or Latin or math. The very first playground in the entire city of Chicago. I'm letting that just sit for a minute. Was opened on the settlement house grounds. Opening day, you know, there's a little ceremony. They're going to take down the fence and like, whoa, we just discovered the kids of the neighborhood had been so excited about it that they had long since made a tunnel under the fence and they'd been in there playing already. (laughs) There were feet prints everywhere. But I love the reason that all these programs started is because Jane and Ellen 
were living in the neighborhood and they were getting to know their neighbors and they saw their needs and just figured out a way to help them. It's simple. You see a problem, you fix it. Over the course of the ongoing years, I'm just going to put this in here. Jane and the team added, I'm just going to list these. An art gallery, which was Ellen's actual special project, which she brought to the public schools of Chicago also, um, expanded out into the community. A public kitchen where they held cooking and nutrition classes. There was a coffee house for club meetings, a gymnasium, a swimming pool, an art studio, a music school, a whole theater company, a circulating library, which was very reminiscent of um, when they used to have the, quote, library in their house back in Cedarville when she was growing up. People could just come in and borrow the books that existed on the shelves. Also, they had an employment agency. Ultimately, they had a boarding house for single working women called the Jane Club. There was a fund that they would have for, you know, if you had to strike because of your working conditions or perhaps you were between jobs, the Jane Club could take care of you. <laughs> Reminds me, what is that show? Tom Hanks had to dress like a woman to stay in oh, a boarding uh, house. Bosom buddies. Yay! Oh my gosh, wait. I just remembered <laughs> something else. Guess the name of the women's hotel that they stayed in. I swear to you it's true. I haven't fact-checked, but I swear to you it's true. It was the Susan B. Anthony Hotel for Women. I believe that. You must have been very young when that show was on. Oh, I oughtn't to have watched it at all. Oh. So, it's so not good. If you go back, <laughs> try to get through 15 minutes of Fantasy Island. Speaking of a TV show, I should not have been watching. <laughs> also, okay, here's a transition for you. Speaking of cultural non-translation over the decades, I have to say that from here, 2018, there seems to be a look back and some complaints that the project aimed to, I don't know how to put it, knock the foreign off people, ruin their culture, and Applebee's eyes them. Oh, yes. I mean, but they couldn't have seen it at the time. When they know better, they do better. Well, number one, though, I don't know how they can even say that. There were Italian culture nights, German literature nights, people from France that talked about everything from Marie Antoinette to Voltaire. I mean, they had preservation of culture. Cooking classes were by nationality. Anyway, number two, given the prejudices and feelings about foreigners in the culture at large, a bit more assimilation was seen to be a worthy goal for success. I think. I think so. Especially yeah, I for think the so. second generation. Even now, I'd say first generation does the best they can with the language and the culture. They're just, they're grown ups. It's hard. It's hard to change. Second generations, usually, this is going off Jet's friends too. Second generation and those families are usually completely bilingual. They're the translators between the parents and the school, between the parents and the doctor. Right. Jet has a friend that we have to keep a cell phone on him at all times in case his mom has a question she needs answered. He's the only one in his family that speaks English. But by the third generation, it seems like the children can hardly even talk to their grandparents. That seems to be the pattern happening at this point in Chicago also. Everybody is slowly assimilating. So you should know this criticism's out there, but at the time it was seen the whole settlement house as a great balance between respecting people's history and giving them a future. It's making them a society. You know, these people came to the United States for new lives. If they wanted to live exactly the life they were living in Italy, they would have stayed in Italy. So they came to the United States and they had to expect to be assimilated in some manner into a society. And later Jane said this, civilization is a method of living and an attitude of equal respect for all people. And I think she is taking that, the essence of that from the very beginning with all these different ethnic groups, you know, making them a society, making them a civilization. I don't mean to say that 
the settlement house healed all ills, though the kids were often in mixed nationality groups and likely, side note, became quite the little linguist, side guess, especially on the playground. Ooh, I hope it wasn't bad words. Probably was. There was still prejudice, if not outright hostility between the grown-ups here at the beginning, though all this place could do was ease that, I'd say. The more you're exposed to the stranger, the more alike you'd realize that you are, Mm -hmm. which was kind of the fundamental principle in the first place, the creation of community. And that is where we will have to leave you for today. Hull House is open, Hull House is operating, and Jane is making a difference in her community. In part two, we are going to talk about how Jane Adams made a difference in the world. Thanks for listening. Bye! If you liked what you heard today, please, oh please, tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. You can visit us on any number of social media sites. You'll catch Susan over on Twitter at The History Chicks with an X or me on Instagram. And then on Facebook, you never know who you're going to get. Thank you so much to everyone who sent messages of condolence to me about my mother. It means a lot. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Music featured in this episode includes Steve Korbs, and the end song is Worth the Fight by Marie Hines, both courtesy of Music Alley. Wipe the darkest shades away Happiness, your saving grace Ignorance won't clean the slate won't find your final resting place Don't circle around the task at hand Or take a far when you can stand Disregard the reprimand Pictures to paint, more horizons to chase, something better in searching, reaching, burning, bleeding black and white, deeper oceans to swim, unpredictable whims, and you're learning, you're learning, freedom's worth the fight. Another telling me to stay in line, but I'm
Caden, there's bigger pictures to paint, more horizons to chase, something better in searching, reaching, burning, bleeding black and white.